It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today, on this beautiful day, we are going to talk about a subject some of us find quite difficult to talk about, and that is money. Specifically, we are going to talk about women and money, and why historically and still today, women are poorer than men. And there are loads of reasons for this, some of which we have discussed on this podcast before. But today is a deep dive into this area, which is particularly relevant at the moment when we think of the pandemic and the rates at which women are dropping out of the workforce in comparison to men as a result of COVID. Finance is a feminist issue, even in 2021. And we know that the world is still rigged unfairly in favour of men economically. And of course, loads of other ways. But we're talking about the finance side of things today. Now, we hear a lot about the gender pay gap, but there is much more to talk about, such as how women can become more confident in saving, investing and building economic stability in our lives. And the fact is that economies thrive when women do well. But it's only by understanding why women are poorer than men that we can finally end this disparity. So to talk about all of this, we gathered three women to tell us about their personal history with money and about how their professional lives mean they are passionate about helping other women become more financially savvy. Annabelle Williams is a former Financial Times journalist and editor who specialises in investing economics and consumer affairs. Why Women Are Poorer Than Men and What We Can Do About It was her first book and the book explores injustices from pensions to boardroom bullying and illustrates how society conspires to limit women's wealth. Annabelle says awareness is the first step to making change, which is why we all need to understand why women are poorer than men and what exactly we can do about it. Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan is a lecturer in the Department of Psychology and a researcher at the Assisting Living and Learning Institute at Maynooth University. Katrina was a teenage mother. She grew up in poverty, experienced homelessness and is now a very respected academic and trusted voice on education, social issues, poverty and gender. And then we also have Rachel Ingle, who happens to be my sister. She is the CEO of Aon Solutions Ireland and a former chairperson of the Irish Association of Pension Funds. She's a member of Aon's Global Inclusive Leadership Council and regularly speaks on the topic of women and pensions to groups of employees of Aon's clients in Ireland. She's also a non-executive director of the National Treasury Management Agency, the NTMA. Now, women are poorer than men. We've established that. But fortunately, there are things we can do about it. Here are three women who have some brilliant insights. Annabelle, I'm going to come to you first. Can you tell us why you wrote this book, Why Women Are Poorer Than Men? And it's just 
an incredibly stark title and also a hopeful one and what we could do about it. So why did you write it? I wrote this book because whilst there's been a lot of conversation about the gender pay gap and how we can tackle that, which is fantastic, I know from my work as a journalist when I had to cover pensions and investment markets that most people don't realise that women tend to have less money than men throughout their lives. Women are the majority of the elderly poor. Um, Women are even amongst the super rich. There are very few women. Women tend to marry into money or be born into money. They tend not to be the business people who are running fantastic companies There are so many barriers still to women making money and the conversation needs to be a lot bigger than just the pay gap. Well, give us a quick history lesson. Obviously, your book goes into it in great detail and I'm not expecting you to cover all the points. But why uh, societally are we in this situation where women earn less than men and have done for a long time? Sure. So my mother's Irish. Um, So I grew up knowing that Irish women couldn't own their own homes independently until 1976. So my mum and her five sisters would have been in their 20s before aspiring to own a home by yourself was even a concept. And that just blew my mind, you know, growing up and thinking that there was no concept that you'd be financially independent. A woman had to do things in life with a man. Um, I did a lot of research in my spare time um, whilst I was working as a journalist. And you know, women in the UK couldn't have their own bank accounts in their own names until 1975 couldn't take out a loan. And by a loan, I mean, even if you wanted to get a washing machine on credit, you couldn't do that independently until 1980. And it was the same with taxes. So a woman's income was added to her husband's and then they were taxed as a couple. The man paid for that. And that didn't change in Jersey until 1990. Um, There are some really interesting stories from Irish history, actually. So um, one of the most mind-boggling that I read about was in 1972 um, there was a German businessman um, living and working in Ireland his name was Werner Braun and he took advantage of an archaic law which said that a woman is a man's property he took advantage of this to sue the lover of his wife Heidi after he learnt about their affair. Now, Heidi um, and the Brauns were living in Cork. Um, uh, There was a local businessman. He was a wealthy and well-respected figure who owned department stores in the area. She had a turbulent marriage to um, Werner Braun, um, said that he'd beaten her, and she fell in love with another man. Um, There was a big trial where, um, much to the incredulity of the judge, all sorts of things were aired and, um, you know, in terms of uh, infidelity and, I mean, you know, Ireland, of course, back then was deeply Catholic and still is in many ways where extramarital sex wasn't just frowned upon, but scandalous enough to bring shame on the entire family. But um, what's shocking is that the jury retired to consider their verdict and the judge said that in Ireland at the time, A wife in this country is regarded as chattel, just as a thoroughbred mare or cow. And that if they considered Heidi a loose woman, who would be hardly worth losing, then Braun shouldn't succeed in his claim that he'd lost something. The jury obviously thought that Heidi was a valuable asset because um, Werner Braun was awarded £12,000 for the loss of his wife. And that was enough money to buy a substantial family home at the time. So, look... That was 1972 and 
this this is what our mothers grew up with, you know, and then by extension, that's the attitudes that in some ways have kind of seeped into our culture today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good story to show what, what we've been dealing with. And those women as property laws were abolished in the UK in 1857. But like you say, they were still here in Ireland in, until 1981. So that's the legacy stuff that we're, we're still living with. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Um, this was a medieval law, basically, that was later exported to America. It was that um, women were um, chattels. We belonged to our husbands. Um, when we got married, we were just indivisible from them. So women weren't able to kind of set themselves up in business or make legal agreements or contracts. A man couldn't even make a contract or an agreement with his wife because it would have been like making an agreement with himself. They were the same person. And look, we think this stuff is ancient history. But actually, when you go into the psychology of why women don't have that much money today relative to men, that we are still held back by the ideas that women can't handle money or shouldn't have money. I mean, we can talk a bit later maybe about Britney Spears in the US, longest running conservatorship in the US history. She's um, been disenfranchised and is not in control of her money. Um, And, you know, it it's just mad. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring in the other guests here to talk about their own sort of personal journey with money and actually, indeed, their reactions to the book. So, Katrina, how did you feel after reading Annabelle's book? Because we sent it off to you to see what you thought. Oh, actually, I kind of felt a bit depressed at the end of it, to be honest. There's a couple of things, though, that really stuck out to me. The first thing I just, just to lighten the note is I found myself telling my husband last night, that partners who share housework equally have more frequent sex in a way actually to try to incentivize him to uh, vac more often. So that's just to bring the lightness here because it was one of the facts that stood out to me massively. But the the other side of that is the, 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 the fact that I suppose the things that contribute to the financial differences between men and women are stark, really. So it's not just... Uh, just actually what Annabelle was talking about there, like the historical facts that women were property for men, but it's also like the stereotypes around what women are perceived to be able to do and not do, the taxation system, the way we pay more, like pink it, shrink it and raise the price, Uh, the fact that we can't get mortgages on our own. Um, It just really showed me that society still, for however far we've come, we're still really mistreating women. And it's um, and it's women who are having these conversations, which is unfortunate for me because I think we need more men to talk about to talk about this and to take responsibility for this, for anything to really change. And the fact that it's women who are writing excellent books like this just shows me that we're still a long way away from making the changes that need to be done to make things fair. Yeah, you mentioned income tax there. And one of the lines in Annabelle's book is until 1950, in the UK anyway, people who were deemed too incapacitated to deal with income tax included infants, married women, lunatics and and idiots. So we were bracketed in there with the the, the babies and the the people who were, you know, not well, mentally ill. Um, Rachel, tell me your response to the book. Well, first of all, Annabelle, I think it was a a wonderfully constructed book book um, and I was so impressed with the amount of research actually that you did to give you all of the, the details and, and the facts throughout it so I, I was really impressed by that. Um, I suppose I came away a little bit more enlightened. 
I was really saddened, actually, as well, that we're still we're still in this position in 2021 where we don't have equity across the female and male um, in society. Um, but equally, there has been significant progress made. So to back to some of the points that have been made already, just even that point about 1950, Roisin, and the definition of, you know, where married women are in with the lunatics and the insane people. But unmarried women weren't. So basically we got married and we became insane. So that's kind of an interesting one, I thought, just from a, putting one and one together and getting two out of it. And also I was really interested to hear like some of the positive things that have happened. You know, the Financial Times, and I don't know if the Irish Times do this, the way the Financial Times now use computers in the background to check how much are, you know, how much this stuff is being quoted from women, from females, you know, what kind of voice from a financial perspective are we getting from women? And that's really, really important because females need to be visible in finance. And that's one of the problems we have because we're not engaging ourselves with it. Um, but equally, the, the government policies, I think that that's really important too. So something that I'm very passionate about is trying to influence what our government as Ireland is, is doing around women in pensions and influencing that. So there's a couple of ideas that I've taken away from, from your book that I think would be really useful for me in that um, environment too. But the, the statement that I think you have in there where you say female economic inequality is both a cultural issue and a structural one, you know, relating to the lack of representation of women in the highest paid jobs and the lack of decent childcare. I think that's the crux of it, isn't it? And I think that's what we really need to try and, and work our way uh, towards fixing. Um, but we need to tackle all of it. Well, we're going to we're going to talk about in depth at some of those issues that you've raised, but I thought it'd be interesting for all of us to kind of talk about our own personal journey with money, because I think there's a lot we can learn from from our own experiences, too. So, Katrina, coming back to you, you and money, how has it been? <laughs> well, um, it's it's an interesting one, because when I when I read the book, what's, what I was thinking about, I, obviously, I was thinking about my own life, my own relationship with money, but also how all women are not the same. So from my experience, like I always think about things from, from a class perspective as well. Uh, being, a, being a woman who grew up in, a, in, a, in, a, in an underclass, so I wouldn't even say working class because none of my family worked. They're all working as criminals, to be honest. So, you know, there was no, the, my relationship with money was always about trying to actually hide, hide money and like constantly feeling like so I was on the social welfare for years I was in receipt of, of rent allowance uh, when I moved to Ireland but in England I had a council house and I was and um, so I never so my I never had any education about money I never understood the tax system I just had this idea that they were trying to take my money away from me <laughs> for no good reason um, but never really had any understanding but as a woman living I suppose in extreme poverty so I was pregnant at 15 um, and was homeless and was in and was in then a, a, an abusive relationship uh, for a couple of years. I literally felt trapped, so I could identify with the book when you talk about um, women homelessness and women being, I suppose, trapped in situations where they feel indebted to their partner and debt, and like they really have nowhere to turn to in order to escape from the poverty trap they're in. I didn't have them words at that point, but I was actually I felt like I had to stay in a relationship because there was nowhere else for me to go. So we had a council flat together. He worked. I was at home with my son. I was claiming benefits at the same time. And really there was no opportunity for me to escape from that life at all. So my relationship with money has been a strange one because um, I never had any. And also when I, when you grow up in a family like mine or in a community like mine, you're not really taught to think beyond today 
So, I, you know, pen, I didn't, you know, pensions or retirement or even any of that kind of thing. There was just no concept of that for me. It was literally getting by day to day. So the idea of even thinking about the future wasn't there. It was like struggling from day to day. So I was that I was that woman that was very, very poor, was very dependent on government handouts, was very criticized publicly. I grew I was in the UK at the time and it was the time when the Labour government were talking a lot about gym slip mums who were like having babies on purpose so that they could get they could get <laughs> they could get money from the state like as if that was a conscious decision of mine so there was this rhetoric in the in the media and in the public like I was something to be ashamed of or I was doing something shameful so my relationship with money was fearful and my relationship with the the state that I was dependent on was actually I saw them as people who were trying to take from me or I was doing something wrong to them rather than it being a supportive situation Katrina, that's fascinating. And I think it just hits on so many things that Annabelle has, has raised. But just to, uh, tell me how you got out of that, because I'm, you know, you've now you're an academic. You are now somebody who is influencing this whole sphere. So what changed for you and what's your relationship with money like now? Um, it's funny because I would I there was I benefited from um, a, from policies that were in place in Ireland, particularly um, about 15 years ago that were, you know, when we had a bit of money in the country that were in place to try and bring people out of poverty. So I actually benefited a lot from our state investing in things like rent allowance in. Um, so basically I was a lone parent living on my own in a really poor part of Dublin. And there I accidentally found myself, um, in an access program, in a university access program, after leaving school at 15 with no qualifications. Literally a friend of mine had done this access program. She was from the same community as me. I met her in the street and she said, I'm in Trinity College, all proud of herself. I was just, I was just after being in pennies on a Thursday morning, spending my lone parents book as I did every Thursday morning. And um, I was looking at her thinking, if she can do it, I can. Now that sounds really like, it really diminishes my achievement in a sense. But being being like, I think sometimes what happens when we talk about women, especially women like me, we forget the skills, the resilience, the capacity to survive these negative scenarios and what that brings in terms of skills. So for me, while I was as, you know, I struggled a lot, I also have a very tenacious attitude and I'm lucky enough that I brought that with me. And there was a policy or in place or in a program in place that was able to facilitate me. So the structure was in place. I ended up going over to the Trinity Access Program, literally knocking on the door and saying, I heard this is for people like me. And, and this academic woman who's very middle class because I wasn't at the time. Now I am apparently because I read the Irish Times. Yes, of course. <laughs> but she said to me, oh, my God, you're amazing. And I literally it was the first time another woman had said that to me. And I just found myself on this journey, very difficult journey into education, got myself a degree through Trinity. Now, it's a long story, Roshan. I don't think we have like 50 hours here. But the, what I will say is um, through my education, I began to realize and learn that what was wrong with me and my, and my life was not down to me was down to the structures that were in place that were acting as a barrier to people from my class, but also from my gender. 
And so as I began to learn that, I, I got really angry, obviously, as a lot of people do, but I also got really passionate about trying to change it and trying to educate myself a little bit more about how to make sure that doesn't happen to my children. And so what's happened for me is I have a pension. Now, ironically, I'll just finish on the story. When I first started teaching in Trinity, it was on like a temporary contract and they pay. I didn't even know about pensions at that point. I, didn't, I thought they were just stealing my money. And I literally, when I first paid the pension on a temporary contract, when you leave, they give you an option of staying in it and it was an amazing one at that point. It's not as great now, the state one, or you can take the money out. And I was like, I'm taking that money out because like I can go shopping. So literally I sacrificed the, the golden pension because of a lack of education on pensions for now. Now I know, but at that time, like it just shows like I've developed my knowledge, but realistically yeah. that development has come through my own my own pushing and it's there's nowhere strategic really that anybody like me can go to get this type yeah. of education it's really unfortunate well, I think that's why Annabelle's book is so important and that's why we want to have this much broader conversation about the book as well and get in people's personal experiences and Katrina I just we will talk more about what you actually do now later on yeah. uh, to help in this area but I uh, thank you very much for your story Rachel you were appalled looking at Katrina uh giving taking the money and running <laughs> I couldn't believe that, Katrina, because this is my area, you know, and uh, gold-plated, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just, uh, but that's awful that the education piece, you're so right. And nobody wants to talk about it either because pensions are boring. They're not sexy, are they? So why would you even think about it? You know, so that's a real problem that we have across society. It's not just women that one. That's an issue for, for, for everybody. Oh, yeah, I had to let Rachel say that because I could see she was shocked and distraught. <laughs> but it's not Katrina's fault. She She knows better now. But um, Rachel, what about you growing up then? I, I should say that Rachel is my sister, as I sometimes do on this podcast. I'm a bit of nepotism. I have my mother on the book club and now my sister, Rachel, who is my most trusted financial advisor. Not that I take much of the advice, but anyway, um, Rachel, what about growing up then? Us growing up in a kind of quite impoverished household as well, different to Katrina, but challenging as well. Yeah. I think I think we probably would have a class that we probably would have been called working class Katrina. Maybe so we were probably maybe one rung, rung up from yourselves. But there just wasn't any money in the house. And I remember, you know, my communion money being being robbed by by my dad to go off and uh, pay for his drinking session one night, you know, and because I had the money because I'd saved it because I was one of those people who thought I can't I can't be doing with not having something for myself because the only thing that I have to rely on is myself. So I think from the very, very early on, we were taught, I think, that working and getting paid for what you work and what you do was really, really important. And and as I said, that you couldn't really rely on anybody else. You you were yourself and you were going to make it or, or break it, you know. And Rachel, there's four girls and four boys in our house. And, uh, you know, you mentioned our father who had his issues. So in fairness, I have to stick up for him a little bit. And he died when, when I was eight and you were a few years older. Our mum was raising eight kids with no money, you know, like... um. But the difference between boys and girls, like I think one thing, a lot of things mother did right, but she, you didn't get the sense that the boys were treated differently in terms of finance growing up. Absolutely, absolutely not. I think it was equality across the board. There was no gender issues, I think. And, you know, there absolutely wasn't because it's four and four. I think they couldn't, there wasn't any uh, any any option to do that. But I mean, we, we were taught very early about budgeting, really, I think, you know, and being clever with how we budgeted. So you probably would know, Katrina, back in the day, you'd have things like butter vouchers. So instead of going to the shop to buy something with a butter voucher, which was butter, you'd use it to buy something else. And you'd have a relationship that you'd build up. So a lot of it was relationship management from an early age as well, to be able to 
to use what you had um, in the most effective way possible. And I think we all got very clever at doing that too. And we, we all looked for jobs. I think I looked for jobs, babysitting jobs, jobs in the local shops, um, because we knew that if we did that, we'd be able to buy the extra things that we weren't going to get from anywhere else. You know, they just didn't come to us very easily. So there was a lot of awareness, I think, for, from myself around the lack of money and what the lack of money meant and what you couldn't have and what you couldn't do. Um, and I think there was one thing that like at, at an early age, I would have been more of a saver than a spender because the rainy day for me was just around the corner because every day could be a rainy day in our house, depending on what happened. And I didn't want to not be in control. So there's a bit of a control thing, I think, for, for me as I was growing up as a, as a young woman. Um, and then, you know, it was great. I went to, to college. Like, I think our family was one of the first of all the cousins that I ever went to to college. But it was again, it was like, what benefits can we get from the state? You know, what is the grant that we can get? When's the first day I can get the grant? You know, what do I need to do every summer to work? I need to go away and work in London every summer so I have money so I can have some sort of student life as you go through, you know, your, your earlier years. But the other thing I found very early on was that I, I never felt poor because Whatever I had, I spent to, you know, I lived within my means. I built relationships. You know, I was with people I knew would support me. You know, it was it's a, it's a little path that you kind of weave, I think, as you go along in your life. And I was good at doing that, um, you know, and that really helped me, I think, as well. So nothing was nothing was going to stand in my way, I think, for me to be able to develop and, um, you know, move around. I wasn't afraid of travel. I wasn't afraid of leaving home. You know, that was kind of a natural part of getting onto the financial ladder, even though you didn't really know that's why you were doing it. But I think that really, really helped. But interesting. So, so going from sort of a conservative, probably, approach to making sure that I had money coming in and having rainy day funds was important to me. I think in my you know, late 20s, mid 30s, I probably started stopped thinking about money. You know, it was kind of like, well, I, I have I have enough or do I have enough or what's enough? I wasn't, you know, I could I could afford to go and buy what I wanted mostly, mostly a lot, very expensive stuff. But, you know, I could do stuff and go places and whatever. So it wasn't really a driver for me into into sort of later life as to, oh, Jesus, I have to earn loads of money to be happy. There wasn't that piece sort of didn't kind of uh, happen for me. Um but I always got people saying to me, well, you know, how much do you earn? What's your bit? Look, it doesn't to do with you. Like, there's a big sort of, what are you asking me that question for? It's nothing to do with you. I earn enough. It's enough. Is in, well, that's all you need to know is enough. Um, but I did find as I got older that I was, it, particularly in the, the, the world that I work in, which is all around pensions and retirement, that I found I needed to talk to particularly women about pensions. I thought that was a thing that I really learned. That was, to your point, Katrina, Nobody, nobody knows anything about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wanted to talk about anything to do with money because it was like dirty. It was dirty to talk about money because, you know, that's just sitting over there. And uh, certainly what I've learned in my now is that talking about it is a really good thing. So I would try to encourage people to talk about it all the time. And you don't have to tell everybody what you earn. You don't have to go that far. You don't have to do that. But talking about it, not making it a dirty thing, um, Talking about the mistakes that you've made from a financial perspective is really important as well, because I think we are all learned from that in particular. Um, and that's what I kind of trying to encourage now. And I'm still a little bit risk averse and to do with my investing, my pension plan, still a little bit risk averse because the rainy day piece plus, you know, having a little bit away and not having too much and inflation kills us all, you know, back in the 80s. For 20 quid, you'd buy 166 stamps. Today, you'd only buy 20. You know, we need to understand that the value of money changes and erodes over time. 
And again, that's an educational piece that I just naturally have picked up just because of the industry I'm in. But I'd say a lot of my friends don't even think about it on a, on a day-to-day basis and they lose out on that. So, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying there, Rachel, just in terms of growing up in a household. I grew up with three brothers and um, actually we were, my oldest brother went to work, left school at 13 and went to work and he was expected to hand up all of his money to, for the house. Whereas I got myself a little babysitting job when I was like 13 and uh, I, I could keep that money for myself because I needed it as as a girl, like to spend on things. And uh, so I never even saw that. Now, to be fair, my brother also got the biggest dinner, which was always a problem in our house, like always got the most the more meat on his plate, which was, you know, because he was working harder than everybody else. So there was there's definitely um, a, a lessons around like what what how men are with money and their expectations and women, even as a as a young age. And then I think about my mother and father, like my my mom was taught tr- treated like she didn't have the mental capacity to manage the money without my dad being there, you know, and the reality is she couldn't. Uh, because she had she was she was an alcoholic and she had issues but it it wasn't to do with her gender it was more to do with the issues that she had but there was definitely messages in my house around uh men and women and just to say I really Rachel I admire you in terms of your uh, awareness around money like I got my first grant check for for Trinity and literally it was like 1800 punt and I spent it all on a holiday (laughs) I was like I'm rich I'm rich because I never had any money or any concept of like money at all. And I've oh, got, I'm going to get slated for that now from some government agency. But the reality is it just was a, I was never really taught like, or thought like you around, you know, the rainy day, the future, or how, how to even conceive that you just don't spend everything that you have. And in fairness, Katrina, probably some of that was my own personality rather than anything else, because I didn't want to be sitting in the house with a paraffin oil heater. You know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do that. So it was more, I'm afraid of being in that position rather than I don't want to go on a holiday and spend it all. Because I would have loved to go on a holiday and spend it all, but my personality wouldn't allow me to do that. I want to bring Annabelle in here. Annabelle, just listening to Rachel and Katrina, have you any thoughts before we go and dig a bit deeper into some of the things that you raise in the book? Gosh, there's just so many things, um, you know, that you've raised that are interesting and that I'd love to come back on. And um, I mean, I think, yeah, maybe the first one is that you guys talk about kind of growing up in a household where there wasn't that much spare money, but you wanted to have some agency. So, you know, you saved a little bit. To me, one of the problems with women being historically disenfranchised and not allowed access to money is that mothers often are able to teach their daughters, you know, keep some money aside, have something for yourself. You know, my mum especially, she set up her own bank account and, you know, my dad's a good man, but it wasn't about that. She just wanted to have some money that wasn't in the joint account. The thing is, is that women haven't really been able to teach their daughters about, well, actually, you know, you should start investing from an early age because there's compound interest. And uh, well, you know, in your workplace retirement plan, uh, make sure you put in the maximum amount each month and go into the highest risk, you know, thing. The stories and the messages that we can pass on to each other about money as women tend to be kind of basic. You know, we don't go out with our friends. We might get on to talking about salary and what we're spending, but we won't get on to talking about the big stuff. And actually that really holds us back. Um, And just kind of on that point, um, you know, when I say that women have been historically disenfranchised and it still affects us today, I'll give you two little anecdotes um, from the book. And one is that 
women have internalized ideas that other women are not good with money, just from the culture. So um, research has found that female financial advisors, when they're given female clients, they actually encourage them into lower risk portfolios. And if you're in a lower risk portfolio, there's the chance that you'll make less money than a higher risk um, investment. And, you know, they do that because they've internalised this belief that we're not good with money. And it also affects us when it comes to business, right at the other end of the scale, when women are trying to make money. So um, there's a, this shocking stat, which is um, when women go out to private investors to try to raise capital to grow their businesses, they will um, be able to raise one um, P in every pound of money that goes to small stage businesses. And the figures are exactly the same for Ireland, by the way, as I I looked them up just before this call. And um, that's because there's this perception amongst male funders of small businesses that women just don't have the aptitude for managing money, that, you know, that we're going to blow it. And they've, you know, researchers have looked into why this is. And basically, they find that when male entrepreneurs go into that business room to pitch their businesses, they're asked questions about the potential for their business. And women tend to be asked questions about the potential for mitigating loss and for how they're going to handle the crises in their businesses. It's just a completely different mindset. Yeah. Annabelle, I just want to talk to you about neoliberal feminism before we dig deeper into some of the things. You start the book with that. Um, and can you explain what neoliberal feminism is and why it's not helpful? Sure. So just to say, right, this book isn't a misery memoir and I'm not bamboozling people with jargon. So I've worked in as a finance journalist with no background and I know that, you know, there's all these words that um, are kind of used out there to kind of keep keep outsiders out, you know, keep it elite. What I've written about basically is that the history of feminism was always a political movement. You've got the suffragettes who fought for the right to get the vote. Then you've got the 60s and 70s feminists um, who did so much for us in terms of workplace equality. What we're in now um, is called the fourth wave and it kicked off about uh, 2011, 2012. It's been fantastic, right? They've done loads of really great things um, for women. You know, we're talking about getting abortion and rights and so forth. When it comes to um, kind of women and money, the fourth wave of feminism hasn't actually really gone to the government and said, hey, pension laws are unfair. This is just outrageous. Or, you know, there are all of these kind of structural issues, you know, like why are so many single mothers living in poverty? You know, it's just an outrageous. Why don't we fix that? Instead, what we've got is a kind of... Um, a feminism that's very much influenced by um, the capitalist world we live in. And what I was quite aware of is that um, there are now lots of um, kind of money guru women who encourage other women to follow in their footsteps and get to the top of their pathways, which is fantastic. But if you're telling women to do that by dressing for the job you want and being more assertive and, you know, put yourself out there and, and, all, and all of this stuff. Well, I mean, that's great, but there's literally no point exhorting women to do that. Or if the reasons why women are poorer than men have not actually been challenged. And um, this is what I'm talking about. So it's neoliberal feminism. Um, women, instead of women getting together and basically fighting for the laws to be changed, um, Instead, there's just quite a lot of focus on us fixing inequality by ourselves. And a classic example of this is um, with the pay gap. So 
there hasn't been a law that changes that makes it incumbent on employers to actually have transparency over pay. So you know what everybody else is earning. Or like in Iceland, employers have to show that they are not paying people unfairly. And if they can't show that, then they actually face financial sanctions. Instead, what we've got is, well, you know, there's the pay gap. Um, so in, in England, companies with more than 250 employees have to do a, a report into their gender pay gap. That's been in place for four years and it's been dropped or delayed for two of those years. And I think it's clear that government and business leaders have allowed that to happen because they know that doing another report is just a bit of research into something that we already know plenty about, you know. And just, you know, this thing about asking women to negotiate their pay, there's this trope that men negotiate their salary and women don't. Well, you're asking an individual woman to go into a structure where you know, middle management might be female, her female manager might be being underpaid herself, but then they've got to go to senior management who are going to be predominantly male and then advocate for pay rises. It's like, why are you asking the individual to actually change the structure? Why don't we make it so that, like Barack Obama, he changed the law so that it was no longer unlawful for federal employees to talk about what they were earning amongst themselves you know, it's just that level of transparency that we need. Let's talk about some of the other things in the book then. Uh, you mentioned it, Katrina, the pink tax, which is just the the idea that being female makes life more expensive just because you're a woman. Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was really infuriated by the fact that razors, just because they're pink, cost uh, 20% more than I was like, oh, that is terrible. And I told one of my male friends this morning, and he was like, well, why don't you just buy the blue one then? I was like, well, I will from now on, but I didn't know that yesterday. Just to, I just wanted to go back to Annabelle's point there, because I really, the neoliberal feminism piece really riles me. And actually, it, it makes me, I hate even talking about my own story publicly sometimes, because it, it actually individualizes my success as if it's something that an individual person can do, as if a woman can change things on their own. Like I am accidentally a success story in terms of a working class or an underclass woman. Like it never happened because I had some magic power that other women should have. It happened because I accidentally found my way blindly through a system that is not made for people like me. And so it just reminds me of like lean in. I read lean in a few years ago and I was like, wow, yes, women should fight for themselves until, and then as I started to realize like my, my mind includes the voices of a male dominated society. So I had a situation in my work, I'll just share with you where I was employed as a, in, I was in charge of the, the uh, project that I was running and I applied for the job and they offered me the role and they asked me my salary from my last job. And so I had two jobs that I was leaving and I told them and they said, they offered me a lesser salary. And I said, no, I said, no, I'm going to lose. And they said, well, we can't offer you anymore. So I took the job because I really wanted the job. And so I took it and then I was in charge. I was managing two other people and I was managing the payroll. And I realized as I began managing the payroll that there was a man who was working for me who was earning like nearly 10,000 euro more than me a year. And I actually, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought maybe it's something now, some reason, because he's coming from the public sector or something. So anyway, long story short, I went to, I went to HR. Now, with my mind saying, you're going to lose your job, don't say anything. Like the, the, 
the you know the voice that says women shouldn't fight for themselves and also that is very strong internally for me but i went to hr and at the time i was on the tonight show doing a panel on feminism and on on uh, actually on um uh gender gender roles in um academia so i actually in my email to hr i said the irony of this is that i'm currently on the tonight show because i kind of wanted to put pressure on them i was afraid actually they were just going to tell me no. So long story short, they were very apologetic. They actually raised my salary. And then I was like, I need to ask them for the money back that they owe me. Okay. And they suggested that I didn't fight hard enough for the rise. Like, And I did. And I sent them the evidence. I said, I asked you for more money because I was trying to be, as they say, like a man. Like a lot of people say, think like a man. I don't want to think like a man. I actually want society just to be easier for women. Like, let it be easier for us. We don't want to be having to fight all the time. Katrina, that's a wonderful story. I want to bring in Annabelle because I know you want to get in there on this. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in there and say what you've raised is so important. And, you know, the studies show that women it's not that women don't ask for pay rises. Women ask for salary increases at just the same rate that men do and they're less likely to be given them. And there is a small tweak that could be made to kind of the structure, if you like. And that is employers should be banned from asking people um, at interviews what was their previous salary? Because it's totally irrelevant. Um, This has been put in place in other places like um, parts of the US and some European countries. Basically, it means that if you're in an interview and they ask you what you were paid before, basing your next salary on what somebody else decided to pay you risks carrying any discrimination forward. And you know, this isn't just an issue for women. This is an issue for anybody. It's about ageism or ableism and racism. And that is just a small tweak that we could make that would make pay so much fairer. I actually agree with that. Sorry, just the last thing that you said in the book with the other suggestion was to actually make pay public. So like we, I should know what everyone else is getting paid in my, who's on my scale. Like, why am I not aware? So I was saying to, I was saying to one of my colleagues yesterday after reading your book, we're, we're, I'm on the Athena Swan um, panel in our department. And I, I said, I, I really want us to discuss the possibility of making our salaries public within the department. So I don't, I haven't brought it to the department yet. So if you're listening, <laughs> please don't stand up against me now. I, it's just an idea, but I actually think that that would really reduce the difference between men and women. I know men in my, are getting paid more than I am. And I know I work just as hard, if not harder, because I'm carrying my family as well. Like I'm literally carrying my childcare as well as everything else. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. So I'm not advocating that salaries should be known for all. Um, That is done in some countries. So um, there's a country in Europe, basically, where they set up a database where everybody can go and see what their neighbour or their cousin earns. What they found was that when... um, when it was a free-for-all, everybody was looking, but then they changed the system so that if you went and checked on your neighbour's salary, it left a digital trace. And what they found was the numbers of people kind of snooping dropped dramatically. Um, And, you know, what I was talking about in the book was that more recently, um, a group of uh, senior business leaders um, have come together. Uh, They're all women and they're arguing for a new equal pay law, which hasn't been updated since the 70s. And in this new law, it will give people the right to ask 
what um, colleagues are earning and what they'll find out. So it's just a modicum of transparency. I'm definitely not saying that we should, you know, go Scandinavian and everyone should know what everybody else is earning because I think there are some really important privacy benefits to that. Um, but, you know, this whole thing about negotiate your salary, um, you know, and it, it's it, to employers benefit, you know, it's it's to their benefit that they get to play the game a bit and, and pay people unfairly because nobody talks about what anyone else is earning. So, yeah, that was just a small, yeah. another small tweak, you know, that wouldn't be too hard to implement. I want to bring Rachel back in here because I was thinking about you when I was listening to Katrina, Rachel, because you've been on a bit of a journey, I feel like, just as your sister listening to you over the years. That idea that, you know, you were getting on okay, that you were able to navigate everything. So why shouldn't every woman be... I think you've come from that place into a, into a, a be- place where you can see much more that it's not about Katrina or you being great and, and going for it and doing well, that it has to lift everybody and the s- structures have to change. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and, and the other thing maybe before I talk to that is that I think uh, I, I certainly, I don't know whether it's a male and female thing, but, but women I know kind of expect to deliver on their work and then for somebody to recognise it and then reward them for it. Okay, that would be kind of a very logical thing to think. But we need to remember that that doesn't happen and we need to then raise your hand and say, I am doing this. This is my space. I need to be rewarded for it. So being vocal about it, I think is really, really important. But yeah, so the, the journey that I have been on has been, you know, my own personal one and then more looking looking broader. And I'm actually really lucky at the moment because the organisation I work in has woken up to the fact that um, we need representation. We really need representation, not just of males and females, but minority groups across the board at every level in the organisation. And we're in the process of a huge transaction at the moment. Um, And the the first group of leadership for this very big transaction, it's 50,000 colleagues, 50,000 colleagues coming together in a new organisation. And the very first transaction that the leadership uh, group has done is formed a basically 50-50 male and female um, leadership team, which is going to govern the whole of this new company that we're going to be part of going forward. And the mantra going down through the organisation is we need to see that everywhere and we don't want to see it um, in 10 years time. We want to see it ASAP because it's such an important piece to be visibly able to see through our structural um, uh, organisation that we've got. So you can imagine that's creating a lot of ripples around the place and, you know, a lot of... uh, tall white men named John <laughs> and Dave don't forget the Dave Daves coming back to the and Steve's I think Steve's as well <laughs> um possibly feeling a little bit worried but this is so that everybody can rise to the top you know and everybody can have part of the success of the of the whole organization and there's a lot of you know commentary around well we just can't find women in this particular part of our business I think you mentioned that Annabelle in, in your book as well in the investment management arena there's hardly any investment managers who are who are females we just can't find them. So the thing, the kind of things that we're, we're trying to do is say, well, do you know what? When you're interviewing for this position, you're allowed to put 100% of female candidates forward. Don't have any males. You need to tell somebody to find you 100%. So this bit of it has to be 50-50 even on the panel, that disappears as well. So you can you can make the change structurally to your point about we can't all be individuals trying to you know make that happen. If you get big organisations who are buying into that and who are actually leading by example, the change will happen. And one of the other good things currently is 
the new requirements around ESG, environmental, social and governance policies across the world. So you, you mentioned in, in, in the book, Annabelle, about um, different funds which are investing just in female orientated companies or ones that are just good for society or climate change companies or, or whatever it is. So organisations are being challenged now by regulators to be and their shareholders and their people that work with them to say, show me how you are demonstrating this. And under the society piece, there is that inclusion and diversity piece, which obviously leads to the the, the women's um, elevating women and what they're doing within organisations. So that is going to become a requirement, a statutory requirement that we're going to then see the benefit of, I think, in this whole arena that we're talking about okay. today. No, that's a really important point as well. And listen, I just want to get into some of the issues and maybe some solutions as well, because I did want to leave everybody with, you know, some hope, I suppose. Things are changing and getting better. Let's look at motherhood and childcare as a barrier, Annabelle, because you make a very good point in the book that the government spends millions on roads and infrastructure to keep economic activity going. But there's very little done to make childcare affordable. But it seems like that issue is now becoming a priority. But what what has to happen there with childcare? Yep. So the government looks at um, spending on certain things as essential infrastructure. So that's roads and um, you know hospitals or bridges. These are the things that the government spends on because it keeps the economy going. It keeps things go- getting from A to B. It looks at childcare largely as an expense that is supposed to fall on the individual. And then, you know, we get into kind of childcare as being a choice rather than a human right, um, which you could argue that it is. We need to look at childcare as essential infrastructure. It's as vital to the economy um, and to have, you know, essentially one half of the population being able to go out to work. It's as essential as roads and hospitals and all the rest of it. And comprehensive and affordable childcare when governments spend on that it makes their economy stronger there's loads of evidence about this um you know it pays you back in spades okay um and listen then rachel because of your pensions queen i'm going to call you pensions queen what needs to change in that arena for women particularly in ireland and what are you looking at and what do you wish women would know about pensions okay but well well very simply i tell all my children two of which are girls um First job you go into, if there is a pension scheme with your employer, put your name down for it absolutely immediately and put in the maximum amount. The first rule is what you don't have, you don't miss. So get in there and put the money in from your first paycheck so you're not thinking about it and you don't think like you've lost something, like somebody's stolen from you, Katrina. They're not stealing from you, it's for your own benefit. So so that's the first thing. The, the second thing is to, um, it might sound boring, but it is sexy. Pensions are sexy. Go and read some of the documentation. Go and educate yourself. Go onto the websites. Have a little bit of a flick around. They are, Katrina, they are. Um, <laughs> and, and have a look at it. And, and thirdly, don't be afraid to ask any questions. There's really no stupid questions about this. And but putting the as early as possible, put your money in as early as possible. Take the most from your employer. If they're going to put 10% in, if you put 5% in and only 5% in, if you put 2% in, why would you leave the employer with 5% extra of your salary? Free money on the table. I mean, nobody's stupid to leave free money on the table. And that is leaving free money on the table. So it's and I, so ask questions, educate yourself, sign up immediately Um and hopefully your your default fund, to your point, Annabelle, is something that is investing in the stock market. So it's something risky. It's told to be risky, but over the long term, it's actually the safest place for it to be because you need that volatility to get the growth and to get uh, to, to counter inflation as it goes through. So very simple. But join up, join up, join up. 
Thanks, Rachel, for that. I mean, I don't know if anyone listening is going to think pensions are sexy, but you did a good job. You did. You made the effort there. Fair play to you. Um, if they could see your lovely red lipstick, they might think that it was sexy. <laughs> Katrina, you have been doing some really interesting studies, particularly in the pandemic, and we haven't spoken about it yet. But as usual, who's bearing the brunt of the pandemic the most? Women um, and women of in poverty are even worse. I mean, whether we talk about domestic violence, the increase in that or you know, housing or all of the, the issues. But you've actually done some studies on the rates at which women are dropping out of the of the workforce. What have you found and what do we need to be aware of at this particular time? Oh, one thing that we see, actually, and Annabelle talked about it in, in the book, is the type of roles that women go into or we're socialised into have been most affected by COVID-19. So care roles, caring professions, particularly the service sector has been, you know, really, really affected by COVID. So a lot of women are actually have lost their jobs. So we're looking actually at the only recession really that's having a, a bigger impact on the gender pay gap. It's going to have a massive impact on women. So that's something that we really need to be prioritizing as we recover. But then when we look at the impact of COVID at, and the impact of homeschooling, particularly on family life, like when we talked about the fourth wave of feminism, we're actually talking about another wave, I suppose, Women do the second shift. They call it that in feminist talk. You know, we do our full day's work and then we come home, we take responsibility for the childcare, the worry work in the house, et cetera, et cetera. But when homeschooling was actually placed on the family, it actually broke a lot of working women. So, and, and, and what we've observed in our research is that actually COVID is the great equalizer. So it's equally affected women across class, across society. Like we did a, a national survey, 10% of women reported leaving professions, leaving work because of the pressures that were put on the extra pressure of COVID. And these were women who were working in pharmacy, barristers. It wasn't a specific type of job. So we really do need to consider now how we're going to support women to go back into the workplace, but also really reconsider who is responsible for the home life. Who is the person that has to carry that? And what are the supports we're going to provide to women to, to to come out of this because not only has it had a negative effect on children our welfare our mental health you know our performance it's also really brought to light some of these structural issues so as Annabelle pointed out in the book and other people has been increase in domestic violence you know homelessness poverty so as a society we really need to think about women differently and how we're going to support them to stay engaged in employment to move into new types of employment and ensure that this doesn't happen again. I'm going to have to wrap it up now, Annabelle, and I want to leave it on a positive note. I'd love us all to kind of maybe look at how people listening can be better with their money. I, I'm just, I haven't spoken much about myself. I'm rubbish. And thank God I have Rachel because when I do have issues, I can ring up Rachel and ask her things. But I, I I didn't quite get the budgeting thing that Rachel seems to have got. She's a bit older than me. So I think by the time I, I was coming along, I'm a bit more look And my personality is more like my mother. We kind of throw it around when we have it and we forget to save, to keep hold of it. But there's so many issues here. How can women who want to learn how to be better with money, what can they do to be more aware yeah. So firstly, I think it's obviously very, very difficult if you're living hand to mouth. So that's kind of a separate thing. Um, but what women need to do is look at money as self-care. So it's the same as kind of putting in a bit of time to your skincare routine, you know, making sure you eat right. You know, a lot of us try to get down the gym at least once a week or do something. You need to factor that into money as well. Um, looking after your money 
is about showing that you care about your future self as much as you care about yourself today. And I know that it's a bit like the weight section at the gym. It just seems really masculine and a bit confusing. Like, why go in there? Um, You know, it's not. It's actually quite simple. Anybody can understand it. That's cool. And Rachel, what would you say? I mean, you you mentioned your daughters and and that. What, What kind of recommendations in terms of saving or investing, you know, would you be talking to them about? Yeah, well, well, I would first of all start early, I think is the number one. Start as early as you can. Um, uh, don't spend more than you earn, which sounds very simple, but don't spend more than you earn. Set some goals for yourself. You know, women are going to live longer than men. We're going to be on our own at some point of our lives. If you do have a partner, we're going to be on our own. 70% are the most impoverished in the world. So you need to you need to save more than 20% than men do because you're going to be around for longer. So think about that. And what is the goal that you set? Take full advantage of any company pension plan that you're in. If your employer is going to give you something, make sure you've taken the maximum from them. And create a budget. It's like on Sunday nights, as you say in the book, sit down on a Sunday night going, how did I do this week? You know, it's not a pain in the neck. This is part of your integration with your life. It's part of your life. And 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 think about it like that. Try and reduce your debt, starting with your highest interest rate stuff that you've got. Try and work, work yourself down. And then from that, when you get to finish that, work it up to a rainy day fund three to six months worth of a rainy day fund, because that will give you more. All of this gives you confidence and take a deep breath before you start. Take a deep breath. And it's it's not as hard as it sounds. It's it's actually really not as hard as it sounds. That's very reassuring. Katrina, what about you? Have you had, in your experience, from going, as you say, to an underclass to somewhere where you're carrying your family, How what's your um, self-care financially now? I'm actually good. Like, I'm paying full pension now. I have a private pension. I'm paying my mortgage off early. There's a load of things that I'm doing. I would say, though, for women who are like me, that to go easy on yourself... Like if you are struggling financially, remember, like the system is is against is against you. So like try not to internalize, try not to internalize the fact that you have no money. If if you're not overspending, because like some of us do, some of us are a bit frivolous, like yourself, Roisin, I like, you know, it's taken me a long time to realize I need a rainy day fund, but I am there, Rachel. So please don't give out to me. I'm there now. But the reality is, like, we don't have enough. This book shows us that in lots of different ways we're being penalized in terms of our pay, the pay gap, in terms of pink tax, in terms of... So there's a lot of reasons why we have less money and we struggle financially. So if you are in that situation, go easy on yourself. And if you have the capability, I would say to all women, question, 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 look for options, question the system that you're in, ask for more money if you feel brave enough to to do it. And if you don't, Talk to other women who look like they are a little bit braver and they might be able to give you a pep talk. Like it's not some, it's not your fault necessarily sometimes when you're on the poverty line. The worst thing for me about coming from that background was thinking that I made it that way for myself, that I, I had done something to make me have less money than Rachel, let's say. You're my comparison. So I'd be looking at you successfully and thinking I'm a failure without actually knowing that the structures were in place to fail me way before I was even born. And therefore, so I say to women, go easy on yourself, ask for help if you can. And hopefully women like us and men, if they're listening and they want to help, hopefully we'll begin to change these and make it easier for for other women coming up behind us. Annabelle, just on feedback for your book, finally, what has been the feedback? What are people, women saying to you and what I suppose, I presume you wrote it to make a difference and to make this, make these problems less and to change things. So do you feel like it's doing that? 
Yeah, the feedback has been fantastic. And what women have been saying is that they thought that it was just about the pay gap. Um, it's not. So um, I don't talk about the pay gap until very far back in the book. Um, it's about so many other areas. It's about how the government makes spending decisions without thinking about what their impact will be on women. When we cut spending on healthcare, it predominantly affects women because we require those services more than men. Um, it's about the fact that there are laws that are in place, but because there's no legal aid, nobody can fight it. So when a woman goes to work and she has to wear high heels or 12 different types of makeup products, that's actually unlawful. But there's just no redress. There's no way that you can actually get the employer to abide by the law. Um, there are just so many different things. And um, I want to move the conversation about why women are poorer than men away from the workplace and childcare, because it's not just about those two things. And, you know, even if you don't have kids, you're as a woman, you're still perceived as a potential child carrier. And that also kind of misses the point because women have ch have responsibilities for caring foisted on them throughout their lives. You know, let's spare a thought for the so-called sandwich generation, which are the millions of women with the dual responsibility of caring for an elderly parent and their children at the same time, you know? So... Yes, it's gone really well. I've had loads of great feedback and thank you all. Um, it was great. great to talk to you about this book. And Annabelle, one final thing, because investing, it's something that a lot of women wouldn't see themselves doing. Now, you do need a bit of money to invest, obviously, before you can start doing that. Final word on, on that and why women should consider it. At least do a bit of research and look into it. Sure. So investing is how you make your money grow. It's the way that you can turn £5 into £50. Um People, the biggest misconception is that people think that um, investing in the stock market is gambling and it's not. There's a clear difference. So a gamble is something where there tends to be a binary outcome. You buy a lottery ticket or you bet on a horse and you either win or lose. Investing, if I buy some shares in Amazon with a, you know my £100, the odds of me losing every penny of that because Amazon goes bust is actually quite low. Um, there'll be, with investing, there's a range of outcomes. Your money goes up, your money goes down over time. And that's what makes it different from gambling. And I think that that message needs to come across really clear because women, we know, tend to not to be so interested in high-risk gambling. Um, in fact, we don't take out as many payday loans, for example, as men do. Um, you know, it's about, uh, it's about putting your money on a road towards something bigger in the future. And maybe just to give one example of that, Roisin, just to, to put in, because like that, like, you know, Carrie from Sex in the City, because I'm bringing sex in again, because my mother does it on every podcast as well, apparently. <laughs> but Carrie in Sex in the City spent $40,000 every year on her shoes, on her lovely, lovely shoes that she's got. If she had invested that money over her 40 years to retirement, she would have had $800,000 in her pension fund, you know, instead of her $40,000 worth of shoes in her fridge. Rachel, could so you give me the pennies equivalent of that, please? So <laughs> if I wasn't spending 100 quid a month in pennies or Primark for you, Annabelle, how, what would that transfer for me? A, a hell of a lot more money than you got in your pension plan today. So you're up at 50 grand, like, you know, it's a, yeah. a cup of coffee, a cup of coffee five days yeah. a week. Don't do it. You've got 20 grand in your pension at retirement.
I think a big message here is looking after our future selves. The way sometimes we do it when we know we're going to have a hangover in the, in the morning when we have the tablets and the glass of water beside the bed. It's like thinking ahead to our future selves. And, you know, old age poverty is a huge issue for women. So we need to realise that we, we might have less than we think we will have at that time of our lives. So think ahead to our ourselves in the future. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been fascinating and I hope we can keep talking about it too. Rachel, Katrina and Annabelle, thank you very much. That was Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan, Rachel Ingle and Annabelle Williams. And a reminder that Annabelle's fascinating book is called Why Women Are Poorer Than Men. I really hope you got something from that conversation. And Annabelle's book is well worth a read. That's it for now. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch on social at IT Women's Podcast on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.